reading from today is for, from Galatians 2, 11 to 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You may be seated. Well, good morning, Christ City. Again, it's still me. Uh, I did announcements and this is the one-stop shop this morning. Uh, I, I want to just, just say something out of the gate here. Uh, if, if there's one thing, uh, one thing that we should take away from our time in Galatians uh, so far, uh, it, it should be this. Uh, that the gospel of Jesus uh, is not just good news to, to be cherished. It's not even just good news uh, to be shared. Uh, the gospel of Jesus is meant to infect and worm its way into, into every corner, every part of our lives. It's radically practical. See, last week we saw how the good news, the good news uh, compels us uh, to remember the poor coming from the character of God himself. A God who cares and loves the marginalized uh, in our world. And we saw that remembering the poor wasn't just, you know, thinking of the poor, uh, occasionally, you know, throwing some money uh, in, in a basket, but, but committing ourselves to care for those on the margins of society. This radical, perhaps even uncomfortable outworking of the gospel. And if you were uncomfortable last week, uh, I have good news for you this morning and bad news. Uh, the bad news is, is that this week is equally as uncomfortable uh, and Galatians is good at that. The bad news is that this week is equally as uncomfortable in terms of needing to apply the gospel uh, to our lives. But the good news is, the good news is, is I think this uncomfortable gospel application is what will actually lead to revival in our city. Uh, I'll get my Tim Keller quote out of the way early in the sermon. Um, Tim Keller, he says this, Revival occurs... When those who think they already know the gospel discover they do not really or fully know it. This leads to repentance and change. In other words, if we want to see revival, repentance, and change in our city, we need to identify what I want to call this morning a gospel hypocrisy. Gospel hypocrisy. And we can define gospel hypocrisy like this. Gospel hypocrisy occurs when our actions, the way we live, the things we do, when our actions obscure, twist, or altogether fail to tell the truth about the good news we have received in Jesus. I'll read it one more time because I think it's really important. Gospel hypocrisy occurs when our actions obscure, twist, or altogether fail to tell the truth about the good news we have received in Jesus. Have you ever been called a hypocrite before? I have. I have. And as a follower of Jesus, I think being called a hypocrite is at the top of my list of names I, I don't like being called. And I think it's because the people who, who typically call you a hypocrite uh, know you. 
right? They've seen your life. Uh, they've seen the way that you live. And they're pointing out the discontinuity in your life. Either that or they're just mean. And there's a section, there's a section of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 23, where we find the use of this word hypocrite and, and hypocrisy uh, six times. It's only found 14 times in the New Testament and six times are in this one chapter. And Jesus is going off on hypocrites. Listen to how Jesus describes uh, the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of his day. Picking it up in verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, I think this word hypocrite and, and hypocrisy, we, we kind of use it loosely in our age, right? We can refer to a hypocrite, you know, someone who steals or, or lies or, or cheats. We kind of just kind of throw it around out there to mean a whole bunch of, of things, right? Wherever we see, you know, discontinuity in somebody's life. But in the New Testament word, world, rather, uh, this word for hypocrite uh, comes from the world of theater. It comes from the theatrical world. And it literally means to, to, to play act or, or put on a charade, uh, to, to pretend. But why? Why would someone do this? Again, in the biblical world, a hypocrite is something very specific. A hypocrite desires the approval and praise of man more than the approval of God. And isn't this exactly what we've seen so far in Galatians? This sort of hypocrisy. False teachers bring a gospel according to man, aimed to please man, that should result in the praise of man. There is a true gospel that the Galatians need to behold and understand and apply. But in its place, the false teachers are putting a mask are hiding, are veiling this true gospel. They are acting hypocritically. And, and twice in our text this morning, we hear Peter, Barnabas, and the Jews that followed them being called hypocrites. Following hypocrisy, acting hypocritically. What I want to do this morning is frame our time in the form of three questions. Three questions to frame our time together this morning. What exactly is the gospel hypocrisy of Peter and his friends? What, what, what is it? Uh, why did Peter and his friends commit this gospel hypocrisy? And then thirdly and finally, how are you and I guilty of the same gospel hypocrisy today? So if you have your Bibles, Galatians 2, we're going to read from verse 11 to verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one at the back or just on your phone, pull it up in an app. I'll trust you're not texting. Galatians 2, 11 to 13, it says this. But when Cephas, that's Peter, when Peter came to Antioch, I, oppo I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before a certain man came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back. And separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. 
In verse 13, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now Paul, Barnabas, Titus, they have left Jerusalem, right? They, they were there, we saw that in the first ten verses of chapter 2. And, and the apostles we find in Jerusalem, they didn't make Titus get circumcised. And Titus is happy about that, right? He's excited about this. Instead, it says what? They gave the right hand of fellowship. It says, together they recognize that Paul has this unique mission to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Just as Peter is to bring the gospel to the circumcised or to the Jews. And by all accounts, this Jerusalem trip, it couldn't have gone any better, right? It was a win, win, win. Again, especially maybe for Titus, right? This was a good thing. But as we come to verse 11, as we come to our text this morning, what we discover is that the first 10 verses of this chapter are really just kind of setting things up for the conflict, uh, for the bad news, if you will, that will happen in verses 11 to 14. This conflict or this showdown in Antioch. And so what's the tale of the tape? Who are our combatants? Well, we have Paul, we have Peter, and then we have the church in Antioch. We've looked a lot at, at Paul so far in this series, and so I think we, we get what Paul's about. But I want to look now at Peter and the church in Antioch to understand just what is happening in this conflict. Peter. Peter, as we've already seen in Galatians, well, he's an apostle just like Paul. Same apostolic authority. Peter lived he traveled, he was with Jesus during his earthly ministry. And now, again, Peter's bringing the gospel to the Jews, to the circumcised. Peter was Jewish. Shocker. Peter was Jewish. But even as a Jew, even as a Jewish follower of Jesus, there were certain things that Peter would observe when it came to relating to other Gentiles, being in contact with non-Jews like you and I. See, in, uh, in, in, in Acts 10, we read that this changes when Peter meets a guy named Cornelius. And you can switch there if you'd like in your Bible, or you can just follow along. But in Acts 10, uh, Cornelius receives a vision, right? And it says in this vision that, that Cornelius was to call Peter to himself. The next day in Acts 10, it says Peter also received a vision. And in this vision, Peter sees a sheet descending from the sky. And on that sheet, there are a host of unclean animals. Animals that a good, uh, God-fearing Jew like Peter should not eat. And he hears a voice say, get up, Peter, kill those animals and eat them. And Peter, because it seems like Peter has this wherewithal in his vision to kind of protest, I wouldn't have that wherewithal. I'd be like, I'm having a vision right now and I'm freaking out. But, but Peter, he, he protests in his vision, he says, Lord, no, 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 no. These are unclean animals. I, I've never defiled myself like this. But then in Acts 10, verse 15, we read the voice say something very, 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 very important. The voice says this. What God has made clean, do not call common. And at that moment, the messenger from Cornelius comes and, and he stays with Peter for a night. And, and the next day, Peter goes to Cornelius' home, Cornelius the Gentile's home, and he finds himself surrounded by unclean Gentiles. And immediately he connects his vision to where he is now. What the Lord has called clean, what God has made clean, do not call common. And so Peter, as is Peter's sort of stick, 
He begins to preach. And in Acts 10, verse 34, Peter shares his revelation with the Gentiles there. He says this. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. See, this is the Peter we now find in Antioch. This is what Peter believes about Gentiles as he goes to Antioch. Peter knows, he believes, he's seen that God shows no racial partiality. And we actually read in our text this morning that as Peter goes to Antioch, things begin well, right? In Galatians 2.12, For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. That's because the church in Antioch was strange. If we were to keep on reading in Acts 11, we, we'd see that um, persecution broke out. And because of persecution in Jerusalem, uh, the Jews are spread throughout the Roman world. And some Jews go to Antioch and they do something crazy and they begin to preach the gospel to Greeks. And something even crazier happens. Uh, The Greeks believe the gospel. And so now there's one church in Antioch, one gospel message unifying them all, and together they are sharing table fellowship. And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And we should not rush past this. We shouldn't rush past this. Whether you're a follower or Jesus, of Jesus or, or, or not this morning, how enviable, how desirable is this picture of the church in Antioch with all these people sitting around the table of different race, a socioeconomic background, uh, histories, all these people sitting around the table, all joining uh, together in one meal, all, all equal in Christ, all, all sharing together equally of the Lord's Supper. Is that not enviable then, as much so as it is now? Do we also not desire that now? This is a beautiful picture. The other day I was, I was talking to a community group leader, and we were celebrating, and we were worshiping. Because he described his community group the previous night like this. He said, sitting around my table, there was a Congolese woman, a Zimbabwean woman, a couple from Greece, a South African, a couple Chinese couples, an elderly white lady, an American, and a whole bunch of young white people. That's a beautiful picture that is to be celebrated. How is it that in a world that is moving towards tribalism, because make no mistake about that, we're not the progressive utopian society we like to think we are. No, no, no. We're moving towards tribalism. How is it that in a world moving towards tribalism, a community group like this can happen? How is it? See, next week, we're going to take a break. We're going to take a pause. We're going to do a bit of an excursus, if you will. And we're going to look at this reality that the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, demolishes all racial, all social, all class, and any other segregation lines. The gospel of Jesus demolishes these lines, demolishes these divisions. But this morning... It should suffice us to to say that the church in Antioch was living in the theological reality that that Paul will describe later in Galatians chapter 3 like this. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In verse 28, maybe at the passage or verse you know, 
There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Every person in that house church in Antioch, beautiful in their diversity. Don't misunderstand Galatians 3.28. It doesn't mean we all become the same. Don't confuse uh, unity with uniformity. Don't confuse that. But each person around that house church table in Antioch, beautiful in their diversity, uh, had become one new humanity in Jesus. See, the math of our world is this. Uh, One plus one plus one plus one equals four. You're you're tracking with me so far, right? I'm an English major, so that's hard for me. Um, But that's the math of our world, right? The math of the gospel is one plus one plus one plus one equals one. One in Jesus. One new humanity in Christ. Again, next week we're going to look at the profound implications of this. But we need to see that as the early church was sitting around the table, there were no barriers or divisions. As they were doing this, they were reflecting a true thing about the gospel. They were reflecting a truth of the gospel. That through the death and resurrection of Jesus, they have all been brought into a new family. And again, these earthly lines of division are gone. They are imaging. Just like that community group was imaging. They were imaging, showing, portraying in their table fellowship a profound, profound, history-altering, life-changing spiritual reality. Which is why Peter's removal from table fellowship is so sad. It's so disappointing. Our first question, what is the gospel hypocrisy of Peter, of Barnabas, and their friends? Answer, in an effort to please man, Peter's actions deceive the church in Antioch, into believing that the body of Christ is actually divided along racial lines. That, in fact, Jesus hasn't really united us. That's the gospel hypocrisy of Peter. That's the lie he is proclaiming and teaching in his actions. He is lying. He is play-acting. He is putting on a show or a charade. And this is why in verse 14, Paul will use the phrase, look with me at verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was what? Not in step with the truth of the gospel. The truth is being obscured here, twisted, perverted. And this is why Paul began by saying about Peter, but when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Condemned how? I don't think the problem... It was Peter's theology. I think Peter had a really good theology. I don't think the problem was Peter's doxology, his, his worshiping life. I think he had a really good worshiping life. I think the problem was Peter's praxis, his practical theology, the outworking of his faith. See, Peter's actions were lying, lying. And, and hear the weight of that word. Peter's actions were lying about God's attitude and posture towards Gentiles. They were lying. Now, why would Peter do this? 
Our second question. Why would Peter commit this gospel hypocrisy? Again, Peter knows the gospel, right? He knows, he, he, he ascends to the idea that in Jesus we're one. He, he believes that. He has good theology. Uh, further, like we said, he, he's, he's had a vision of this, right? If you weren't convinced of this, Peter, remember that vision you had? And yet, despite all these things, when certain men came from James, it says, he drew back, and notice this, and separated himself. Now, I like to envision and imagine things, and so if you're with me this morning and you want to close your eyes and pretend to be envisioning and imagining this drawing back with me, you can do that. Again, I'm trusting you that you're not sleeping. So just imagine this with me, what this drawing back might have looked like. The church, of course, in Antioch didn't meet like this. There was no public gathering space. Rather, they would gather, right, in in private houses. And as we saw in Acts 11, it is quite likely that those houses were owned by both Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Greeks. And so they would meet in these houses. And in these houses, they would do things that are amazingly familiar to you and I. They would pray. They'd pray. They would sing, right? They would look at God's word. And, and Peter perhaps would even show them, look, this is how Jesus fulfills God's word. And then they would eat together. I love that part. They would eat together. And part of that eating together surely contained a remembering of the Lord's Supper, the communion meal. And so imagine this. If you're a Gentile, Peter arrives, and Peter's a big deal. He's a big deal. And this big deal is coming into my home, a unclean Gentile like me. What a profound gospel message that sends, right? Here comes Peter. He's a big deal, and he's Jewish, and now he comes to me. I'm not a big deal, and I'm Gentile, and we're one in Jesus. We're united in this. But when certain men from James come, it says, things change. And maybe the change began like this. Peter comes to the house, sings, he prays, even, you know, sits under God's word. But when the, when the food comes out, when, when the table is beginning to get set, Peter just excuses himself, finds an excuse to not be there any longer. Again, for Jews, eating with Gentiles was as intimate as it could get. I have little doubt, little doubt that these men who came from James improperly quoted Leviticus 20, 24 to 26. But I have said to you, you shall inherit the land, and I will give it to you to possess the land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has what? Separated you from the peoples. You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and have what? Separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. Jews did not eat with Gentiles. Now, I don't care if you're a Christian or not. Jews did not eat with Gentiles. And so maybe it began with Peter excusing himself for a meal. And then other Jews, perceiving this, they also picked up on this practice. And they too, when the meal came out, they would excuse themselves as well. And maybe, maybe it got to the point where they stopped attending meetings in the homes of Gentiles altogether. And they just pulled themselves back entirely. Until it was very clear to those Gentiles that there were actually two tiers in this Jesus movement. There's the inside, and then there's the outside. There's, there's us, and then there's you. The dividing lines were redrawn. The walls rebuilt. 
Detentions, rebirth. Now to the question of why would Peter do this, I think we find two reasons in our text. And the first is obvious. Look at verse 12. But when they came back, sorry, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself. Why? Fearing the circumcision party. Peter was afraid. He's afraid. The apostle who had denied Jesus three times on the eve of his crucifixion was once again in fearful denial. And the first time it was Jesus Peter denied. And now in Antioch, in action, Peter was denying the thing for which Jesus gave his life, the church. On the night before Jesus was crucified, it was a, a lowly maidservant who Peter feared. And now in, in Antioch, it was Peter's religious colleagues and peers. So one simple, simple explanation as to the why behind Peter's withdrawal is, is, is fear of man. Fear of man. Simple fear of man. But, but I don't think Peter would have necessarily seen it that way. Remember. Remember, last week, uh, we saw that, you know, Paul, they had come to Jerusalem, and Paul had been encouraged to go to, the, go to the Gentiles. Go, Paul. But simultaneously, Peter was reminded and, and, and told them that my mission is to the Jews, to the circumcised. See, Peter's mission field was the Jews. That was his mission field, the Jewish people. Jews who would have looked suspiciously upon Peter's table fellowship with Gentiles. Now, we have to keep in mind here that the political climate at the time in Antioch was one in which the, the Jew-Gentile relations uh, were, were intense. Like, really intense. Like fighting and, and killing and, and violently in, in, intense. Things were bad between the two groups. And so James sends some men to Antioch to tell Peter perhaps something like this. Hey, Peter, maybe you should just just chill out on this table fellowship with the Gentiles for now because, hey, here's a good reason. It could hurt our mission to the Jews. It could affect our mission field. See, what you and I and Paul clearly perceive to be fear of man to Peter, maybe he's thinking, maybe he's justifying that he doesn't want to lay a stumbling block in front of the very people he was called to reach. Will the Jews respect me, receive me, if they see me eating with Gentiles? And so you could see how easily Peter could have justified this. And it seems, it seems like a decent justification until we're reminded that to end fellowship with a person on the basis of race is entirely antithetical to the good news of the one new humanity in Jesus. It seems like a decent justification until we filter the situation, not through human pragmatism, but through the reality of the gospel. See, friends, here is where the rubber meets the road for you and I today. We are masters. I am a master of self-justification. We will find any and every reason to exclude the gospel from a corner of our life from a part of our life. And those reasons will sound good. 
Those reasons will sound religious. Those reasons will sound wise and prudent. But make no mistake about it, it will be hypocrisy. Self-justification that leads to the avoidance of applying the gospel to our lives will always result in gospel hypocrisy. And I want to just sit with that for a second. What have we justified? What have we explained away in our own heads, in our own lives, that, well, the gospel doesn't have anything to say about that? It's a nuanced, uh, a complex situation. It's not quite that simple, Jake. We saw last week, right, when Brett preached on remembering the poor, that it wasn't nuanced and complex at its core. Right? God cares for the marginalized, and so too we are to care for the marginalized. We are to live out this hospitality, this welcome that we've received in Christ. And so let's sit with this for a second. What is the gospel hypocrisy in your own life? I want to end our time this morning by looking at two ways. Two ways I think that we're guilty of the same gospel hypocrisy as Peter. First, gospel hypocrisy, it happens, it occurs when we fail to confront one another with the truth. In verse 11, Paul tells us, but when Cephas came to Antioch, what did he do? I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And then he begins verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the gospel, sorry, rather with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, I said to Peter, where? In a private room somewhere, right? On Facebook, I DM'd him. Before them all, before them all, Peter's functional wandering from the gospel was public. Paul's rebuke then is also uncomfortably public. It's public. And it would have been very easy for, for Paul to justify a different approach. If you've read to the end of Galatians, you know that chapter 6, verse 1, begins like this. Brothers. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of of, of gentleness. And you're thinking to yourself, huh, doesn't seem too gentle to me. See, Paul could have casually mentioned something to Peter the next time their paths crossed. He could have just written him a letter to be delivered at a later date. He could have just ignored the problem and hoped it sorted itself out. But this was not the time for any of that. Paul rightly perceives that at stake in this new church in Antioch, indeed this new church in the ancient world, is the church's unity for future generations, for you and I. John Stott, he writes this, If Paul had not taken his stand against Peter that day, either the whole Christian church would have drifted into a Jewish backwater and stagnated, or there would have been a permanent rift between Gentile and Jewish Christendom. This is uh, the conflict in Antioch. This is what it's about. And Paul's saying, I spoke the entire truth in Antioch, and now Galatian church, I'm speaking the entire truth to you now. So listen to me. And to the point that he'll later ask, Galatians 4.16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? 
brothers and sisters, we, we allow gospel hypocrisy to spread within our church when we fail to speak the truth to one another in love for the purpose of, of restoration. So that our lives, hear this, so that our lives won't spread lies about who God is and what he has done for us once and for all in Jesus. We need, we need to desperately reacquire the art of truth-telling in the church. Of truth-telling. If we're going to reacquire this art of truth-telling, we need to remind ourselves then of who exactly the church is. See, the church is a group of diverse people who through the work of Jesus have together rejected their own kingship and autonomy and together now bow their knee as one to the one King Jesus. That's who the church is. Revival is ultimately dependent on a move by God by his spirit. I concede that absolutely. But historically speaking, there are ways in which we either till the soil of revival in preparation for it or harden it, sow salt. And the biggest barrier to revival in the West, bar none, is autonomous individualism. It's you and I care too much about ourselves. It's that you and I can't get over ourselves. Our kingdom, our way, our rule, our reign. That is the barrier to revival in the West. I want to read to you a longer quote by an author named Mark Sayers. And Mark Sayers, uh, he writes this, and I think he nails it on the head when he says, In the secular environments where we find ourselves, this disbelief in the truth of Christ's call to holy living, to the transformational nature of faith, is not dismissed explicitly, Right? Rather, rather, it creates a cognitive dissonance, a disconnect between the truth of the gospel and the gospel of our age. The Christian gospel says that flourishing happens within boundaries, within a shared identity, and it's necessary attending commitments. That is, as a Christian, you obey the Lord and submit, submit to other Christians in love and humility. It's not you first. You are limited. You are bound. And in this, there is freedom. He continues to say this. But our culture says, not so. Not so. Whether the boundaries are autonomy of sexual expression or the freedoms of digital life or any other boundary, to transgress them is to impede on freedom. To threaten human flourishing. Flourishing occurs in, in non-places where you decide your own destiny, where you live unbridled by commitments, by restrictions. The new swear word of the 21st century. I think he's right. The church will only commit itself to speaking truth to one another in love if we truly believe that the boundaries given to us by Jesus are for our freedom. We have to believe that. That they're for our good. That flourishing in the most biblical sense is found not in asserting ourselves, but dying to ourselves. 
And we've talked about this in the series so far. Dying to what we feel is right. Dying to what our culture tells us is good and beautiful and is to be desired. I don't know if we're entirely convinced that following Jesus will lead to true freedom. I don't know if we're convinced of that. And contrary to the the, the title of this series, we're not convinced the gospel has the kind of freedom that we're looking for. And if that's the case, we'll never speak truth to one another and gospel hypocrisy will grow. And the growth of gospel hypocrisy is the death of gospel witness. Hear that, Christ City. The growth of gospel hypocrisy is the death of gospel witness. Let us learn to speak truth to one another in love. Finally, and I'll close with this, gospel hypocrisy happens when we only eat with people who are like us. Again, next week's message is entirely focused on how the gospel confronts racism, classism, and other forms of segregation. So be ready for that. But to get our mind thinking about this this morning, I want us to consider the rhetorical question Paul concludes our text with in verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul has met his Gentile brothers and sisters on common ground. And in doing so, his life was reflecting the unity of the people of God in Jesus. But now having withdrawn, Paul asks Peter, how could you change course? How could you implicitly tell Gentiles that to truly belong, they need to observe Jewish customs? How could you do this to them? Again, just think about this, not just on this level right now, but on this level with with us, the church. There are Gentiles and Peter's coming. This is good. What a profound reality this gospel proclaims in our lives. Oh, wait a second. It's the same as every other class division, race division, any other form of segregation. Never mind. This isn't actually good news. We often don't realize that our fear of man doesn't happen in a vacuum. Our fear of man impacts other people. Peter's refusal to eat with Gentiles, Peter's racism, has put a serious stumbling block before the Gentiles. Why would they follow Jesus now? What Peter didn't see is that in putting one group's needs above another, he was emptying the gospel of its power. One commentator says, accommodating the truth of the gospel to the prejudices of our congregations or the values of our constituency would mean mean preaching a merely human gospel, one that has been circumcised and emasculated of its transformative power. Friends, when you and I only eat with people like us, we say that the gospel is only for people like us. In other words, we become hypocrites. And our gospel becomes powerless. 
So here's how I want us to close. I want to just end by preparing the soil for the deep dive that we're going to do next week on this topic. And I think soil preparation typically happens with repentance. In recognizing how we have not been walking in step with the gospel and turning and walking that straight path again. So this morning, if you this morning have any hidden or not so hidden sense of racial or class superiority in your heart, you need to repent. If you this morning find yourself blaming the problems of this world on a particular race or class of people and not the spiritual forces of this world, the flesh and the devil, you need to repent. If you this morning engage in joking or banter that seeks to elevate your tribe at the expense of another tribe, one that is different than yours, you need to repent. Because the person who ultimately looks the worst when these sorts of things happen is not you. And it's not even the person who's on the receiving end. It's Jesus. One scholar tells us, ultimately, what is happening in Peter's withdrawal. The image of the one new person in Christ was defaced. I'm going to invite you to stand with me now.